1: Hello, salaam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahana Saqani. Who are the Salafis, and what are the roots of Salafism? What does it even mean to be Salafi? Why is Salafism so concerned with ethics of visibility and bodily regulation? Why, when, and how did Salafism become so significant? In his latest book, In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East, published in 2022 with University of California Press, Aaron Roxinger explores these questions and many more about Salafism. He situates Salafism as a movement whose core logic is shaped by questions that emerge distinctly during modernity, even though the movement derives its claims to legitimacy from claims to continuity with the early Islamic history. In other words, Salafism is a distinctly modern project that is not rooted in the Islamic legal, textual, or ethical tradition given that many Salafi practices aren't rooted in Islamic texts. As a result, Salafis find themselves in a challenging textual position when seeking religious textual justifications for some of their practices such as gender segregation or not praying in shoes. How then does Salafism legitimate and ground itself? How is its claim to authenticity premised on continuity with the Islamic 7th century? To answer these questions, singer takes a few specific issues such as gender segregation, beards, the length of the robe or pants, as potent ideological sites that are connected in significant ways to Salafism's project to regulate social space. These issues were not applied in the early 20th century or prior but became significant in the mid to late 20th century in a specific social and political context. So, for instance, the beard matters not just because it's an attempt to emulate the Prophet Muhammad, but because it's a visual way of identifying the commitment to emulating Muhammad to make clear who a Salafi is. In our discussion today, Aaron talks about the origins of this book, its major contributions and findings, the roots of Salafism, It's ideas of worship and Tawheed, which is the oneness of God, literally, Salafism's textual and political challenges, the significance of the regulation of social space, questions of authenticity and continuity, and the issues of my favorite things: beers, praying in shoes, gender segregation, and the length of one's robe according to Salafi practice. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Aaron Rock Singer. About his book *In the Shade of the Sunnah: Salafi Piety in the Twentieth Century Middle East*. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your very exciting, very fascinating book *In the Shade of the Sunnah: Salafi Piety in the Twentieth Century Middle East*. I'm so excited to to talk to you about it because, as I was telling you, some of the chapters I plan to assign in my courses, um, especially history of Islam course that I'm teaching this semester, and uh, a lot of the stuff was brand new to me. I was surprised as we were just discussing. And also um, I a lot of the chapters are very, very relevant. They, and it turns out they only became relevant recently. So thank you for this book and I'm excited to talk to you about it.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me. It was a really fun book to research and write. I discovered many things I didn't expect to discover. Um, and it's always fun thinking about the implications of these unexpected discoveries.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. I, I, again, I just, I, so much of it was surprising, um, and we'll get to some of, those, uh, some of those points later on as well. So it is our tradition to ask our author to talk to us about their intellectual background, intellectual journey. What got you to where you are right now?
2: So back when I was a college student, I was studying Arabic. I was at, in junior, on junior year abroad at the American University in Cairo, and I went to a lecture by the Egyptian Amr Khaled, um, who is one of these, at this point, was relatively new on the scene. Now, um, we're 17 years later, he's older, you know, he's decidedly middle-aged. But at the time, he was kind of the hot new thing, um, preaching to Egyptian Muslim um, youth. And what I was struck by at this moment, as I listened to him give his lecture, was that I didn't understand what was going on. I saw both male and female students at AUC totally engaged with this lecture. And I was watching someone and he wasn't conventionally charismatic. And so I started off essentially with a question, which is to say, I don't understand this. I want to understand this. What's going on here? And so that got me started into an undergraduate thesis that I did on Amr Khaled that I ended up publishing as an article in the British Journal of Middle East Studies and more broadly got me into this question of how to understand Islamic preachers and more broadly Islamic movements. Uh, and so that set me on a path of sorts. It be- in terms of research, it really began in earnest when I was doing my PhD on the rise of the Islamic revival in Egypt in the 1970s, which became my first book. And then as I was doing that book, I came across the term gender mixing and the related prohibition um, against gender mixing, which required gender segregation. And this was a position advocated by Salafis in 1970s Egypt. And I essentially assumed that this was a longstanding position, um, that Salafis would cite a variety of proof texts making the case for this, and not only that, but would have done so pretty consistently throughout their history. And what I discovered is that while concerns with gender mixing existed well prior to the 1970s, they weren't particularly voiced by Salafis. And that the extent that Salafis talk about gender relations, they were not concerned with gender mixing in any central sense, and rather were really concerned with the question of individual female conduct. Um, and so I got interested in tracing the story of how they came to land on gender segregation as a non-negotiable principle. And that ended up being something of a entry point to this broader project on Salafi piety through a focus on embodied practice. Really asking this question of how, instead of looking at theology or law as the central focus of how to study Salafism, how we might study Salafism as a social movement and what that might teach us about how the movement has developed its internal logic and the way it not only shapes, but has been shaped by the world around it.
1: That uh, very excellently answers the question of the origins of the book that I wanted to ask you later also. What got you interested in even writing this book? So thank you for that. Talk to us about the book. So what uh, what are some of your main arguments? Uh, where, it, where does the book place? Which specific countries of the Middle East? What time period are we talking about?
2: All right, so this is a book that centers on Egypt, but really splays out across the Middle East, everywhere from Syria to Saudi Arabia to Kuwait, even to Yemen. Now, this book began as an engagement with the scholarship on Salafism. There's been a series of definitional debates over how to study Salafism, how to define it, um, most notably between Henri Lazier and Frank Griffel. And I find Henri's argument to be most persuasive in defining Salafism as a commitment on the one hand to a particular approach to the uh, names and attributes of God, you know, identified with the neo, with neo-Hanbali theology, and on the other hand, a commitment to deriving all law from the Quran and the Sunnah. Uh, and Henri traces this back to the 1920s in his conceptual history, uh, The Making of Salafism, which came out in 2016. But I was left with an additional question after reading this book, which is, While he's undoubtedly right to identify these two key components, there's something left out, namely that Salafism is not just an intellectual or theological approach, it's not simply an interpretive mode, but it's also a social movement. what does it mean to be Salafi socially? How does, how does one perform Salafism socially? How does one visibly identify as Salafi? Because visibility is one of these inescapable conditions of modernity. And so the question is, well, how does that shape Salafism? And so the first contribution of the book is really to think beyond a certain privileging of the political, certainly beyond a privileging in a lot of the scholarship on Salafism of a minority Salafi jihadi trend, um, but but rather to think, well, what does it mean to be a Salafi socially and how can that help us understand the emergence of this movement? Uh, Because this is a movement that seeks to reproduce the prophetic paradigm. And a lot of the scholarship has very much emphasized this point. And yes, that's true. But the question isn't Simply, what does it mean to reproduce the prophetic paradigm, but what does it mean to do so in the very specific conditions of modernity, specifically of the 20th century? In what ways is this reproduction of the prophetic paradigm continuous with Islamic history? And there's certainly aspects of continuity, and in what ways is it discontinuous? So there's that move in terms of the scholarship on Salafism. There's also a broader move in terms of the study of Islamic piety, particularly the discursive traditions approach introduced by Talal Asad and really popularized in many respects in the anthropology of Islam literature by Sabah Mahmoud and Charles Hirschgen. Uh, now, one of the overlooked, or over, well, sorry, the overlooked, excuse me, uh, aspects of Mahmoud's work in particular is that two of the four field sites that she used in her book were actually run by Salafi organizations. And a third was an organization, the Jama'iyah shariya which had clear Salafi influences within it. Um, So we have a little bit, we we have a subset of the religious scene of the women's mosque movement, which is really distinctly Salafi. But even if we were to grant that it goes broader than that, we have a question. Where are these projects of piety coming from? And I think that, discursive tradition approach is really valuable in a lot of ways, namely that it gives us a sense of how Muslims across time and space have engaged in an extended conversation with reference to the Quran and the Sunnah. But I also came away from reading this, materi- reading this book, which I learned a great deal from, with some really serious questions, namely, how should we understand the logic of piety of, uh, that Mahmoud identifies as coming from this discursive tradition? And my argument is that what she calls the regulative logic of the Islamic um, discursive tradition is not actually coming from that tradition, but rather it's very much an outgrowth of modern projects of subject formation of self-regulation. And in particular, it's an outgrowth of a linkage that those projects make between one's internal state and one's external state, that the external state isn't simply a reflection of the internal state. It's also not simply a social marker as one finds at various points throughout Islamic history, but it's actually central to being part of a given movement to embodying that the visible embodiment of a particular model of piety is central to being pious. It's not simply a secondary manifestation of it. And so if I were to sum up my core argument it's that I understand Salafism most fundamentally as a movement whose core logic is shaped by questions and concerns of modernity, even though its core claim to legitimacy derives from its claim to continuity with early Islamic history.
1: Thank you. So in chapter two, you describe the relationship between worship and custom. Um, In Salafi thought, the very not at all novel idea or unique idea or exclusively Salafi idea that belief in God is more than just belief. And so it must also translate into how one say dresses, right? How are Salafis defining Tawheed um, or worship uh, Tawheed so that uh, they draw a relationship between custom and worship? What is What are their concerns about how are what, oh my God, Muslims think this is just a cultural practice. No, 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 this is a an Islamic obligation. What is a conversation like and what are some examples of ideas of customs and worship
2: so this this was in some sense one of the most surprising chapters of the book for me to research Uh, because one could easily study salafism and say okay they're setting ibn Taymiyyah and his definition of tawheed of um all that pleases god um, and avoiding all that displeases him And one could then see the invocation of Tawhid in the 20th century as essentially a continuation of this Ibn Taymiyyah model. And they're certainly drawing on Ibn Taymiyyah and particularly this emphasis on not monotheism, but as Cole Bunzel puts it, monolatry. That this idea of orienting all of one's, not simply ideas or beliefs, but also worship towards God, the one's physical actions. And as you know, this is not unique to Ibn Taymiyyah within the Islamic tradition. Um, I would say in the case of Salafis, where the distinction really comes in is not in defining Tawhid as being being judged not by simply by belief, but also by action, but in setting the boundaries of kufr, of disbelief in terms of action. Um, that the mainstream Sunni tradition has a much more uh, lenient position as to when people's actions don't necessarily match the normative expectations of action. Um, so then the question was, okay, so what does it mean for Salafis in the 1930s, 1940s to be saying we are the, fa- we are the faction of Tawhid? We are the ones who uphold Tawhid. Now, this is a little, if one looks at it on the surface, this is kind of a strange thing to say in a country such as Egypt that's 90% Muslim. Uh, it's this implicit, you're not really upholding Tawhid, we're really upholding Tawhid, which given that this really stands at the center of Islam, is implicitly a pretty strong indictment, not just of their fellow Egyptians, but also of the status quo, the ruling elite. And so then we're left with a question of what's going on here? How do we understand this invocation of God's oneness, um, of the necessity of not merely believing in one God, but orienting one's one's human actions to worshiping of that god. And there I came across this category of custom, um, of Adar, which is a pretty standard category in the Madhub tradition. But there was something a little bit surprising about the invocation of this category, which is namely that it didn't really accord with my understanding of the use of custom in the Islamic tradition, in the Islamic scholarly tradition, the muzhab tradition, because within that tradition, the idea of custom is very much one of setting out a range of areas of social life in which one can, one can differ from Muslims elsewhere ba- uh, based on simply context. Um, for example, how one dresses and that this is the domain of custom. It's not considered to be something that the Prophet Muhammad had something specific to specifically binding to say on. It may not even be a matter in which there is a praiseworthy action to perform. And so then I I, I start trying to figure out essentially what's going on here. What's the move here? Why are Salafis invoking custom? And then I was reading a Syrian Salafi periodical, At Tamadun al-Islami, and I, I was reading an article where the author talks about the centrality of custom to the rise and fall of nations. Um, And here we have a nice concordance with the term Ummah, which can mean both the transnational Islamic community and also nations. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a sec, this isn't the category of custom as the Muthab scholars use it, rather this is the category of custom as secular nationalists use it, as they anchor a nationalist project within daily practice. And so then I started to think about it and said, okay, wait a sec, this concept of custom is doing serious work for the Salafis in their claim to Tawhid. Because if one can adjust, if not arguably collapse, the distinction between worship and custom that is characteristic of the madhab tradition, then one can lay claim to a much wa- wider swath of social life than, than Salafis had previously then they can essentially make the claim that tawhid is about living as a Salafi in all these different domains of your life. And the reason to do this is that their ideological competitors, whether Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood or secular nationalists, um, first in the 30s and 40s, and then under Jamal al nasser they're all making a claim to daily practice. And the question for Salafis then is, how do we make a claim to daily practice too? And the integration of a secular nationalist conception of custom serves that purpose perfectly. Now, what I also discovered in this chapter is that there's this debate over the relationship between ebeda, or acts of worship, and custom from really the 30s through the 60s. And it's in the 60s and early 70s that we then begin to see a concept that Other scholars of Salafism, including Bernard Haeckel, Henri Lazier, and so forth, have identified, namely, the argument for a distinct Salafi manhaj, a distinctly Salafi approach. And my argument is actually that this emergence of the manhaj argument is not something that simply emerges out of educational debates over state-sponsored curricula in the 1950s and 60s, but rather it's an outgrowth of this larger conversation over the relationship between ibadah or worship and custom. And that that then feeds into the argument for a Salafi manhaj that can encompass not merely a textual approach, but also a broader social project.
1: Thank you. That was a, that was a wonderfully detailed and helpful answer um so ever since i learned and very recently from uh, from Yusha patel's book uh, the muslim difference that the prophet prayed with his shoes on i can't let it go <laughs> it, i have become so fascinated with with how this conversation goes in in contemporary muslim spaces i how they respond so chapter 3 was a lot of fun to read um where you talk about the the salafi relationship with this prophetic practice and how Um, And 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 the fact that they now have to contend with this uh, to decide whether to keep it, to reject it, to discourage it, and so on. For me, this, 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 this issue of wearing shoes during prayer exemplifies the tension between choosing something the Prophet did versus choosing something that the majority today have agreed upon or agreed not to do. So what is that debate like? And I mean, it's just really fascinating what their arguments are for and against. I think you point out at one point that they in a way make it the same argument to keep it and the same argument to also reject it, uh, or to not reject it completely, but to say okay we shouldn't do this. Something about uh, not standing out too much, not being you know not be, being on one extreme or the other. So what is that conversation like?
2: So so I'll begin my answer to your question by by agreeing with you that Yusha Patel's book is absolutely wonderful. I read I read it um, about a month ago. I you know had pre ordered it and I really I I felt like this was it it felt like having this conversation with someone who was asking some of the same questions that I was really interested in, though over an impressively uh, long time range. Um, so praying in shoes, it's a practice that we have good reason to locate in early Islamic history, um, that the Hadith corpus um, attests that the Prophet Muhammad did this. And then we see it essentially um, become marginalized within the first few hundred years of Islamic history as part of this broader emergence of Islamic civilization as a distinctly urban project uh, and the related development of these nicely carpeted mosques and concerns with tracking dirt into the mosques. Um, And so with the exception of Hanbalis, this essentially dies out. Um, until the early 20th century, but it's always in theory something that can be activated. That you have these hadith reports that no one is really disputing um, that the Prophet prayed in shoes, and so and you even have Islamic reformists who are not Salafi like Rashid Rida, who are noting in Al-Manar that Muhammad prayed in shoes. Okay, so this brings us to the 1940s. And to people in Ansar leaders of Ansar Sunna, talking about not only praying in shoes as something that is mustahab, that is praiseworthy, but as something that really distinguishes Ansar Asudna in their commitment to talhiq. Um Now, this claim goes into this gray area of making you ask whether they're claiming that this is simply mustahab, or whether it's actually obligatory. Uh, and there's that ambiguity, we might call it a constructive ambiguity in the claim. Um, and so, a leading figure within Ansar Asana, Amin Muhammad Rudah, makes this claim um, in the 40s um, and again in the early 50s, and really says, This is, you know, we are Ansar Asana. We pray in shoes with our heads uncovered. Uh, this is who we are in in modeling ourselves after the prophet of god now what is this what is the what we might call the reactivation of this practice mean what does it teach us one thing is that it is this powerful mode of claiming the prophetic model to say we're going to go back to something that muhammad did even though everyone else has left it we're going to go back to it and we're going to anchor our authenticity in continuity with the seventh century but part of what's so striking about this move, and this is something that um, Yusha's book really gets at too, is that the question of distinction um, within the early Muslim community was very much one of distinction between Muslims and non-Muslims. Whereas here, the question of distinction of praying in shoes is not one of distinguish yourself from the Jews, which is the question of praying in shoes in the 7th century, it's one of distinguish yourself from other Muslims. Now, how does one create internal Muslim difference through the emulation of particular prophetic practices? And one understands why this is a really powerful move, that if everyone else is taken off their shoes, you not only instantly know who's a Salafi, but you also, in, and again, this gets back to our point about visibility, but you also are making this very powerful statement that you are setting lines in mosques. Um, incidentally, this is also a suggest- This also suggests that we should not think of Salafi ritual practice as existing in some parallel Salafi universe. That these people were going to mosques with folks who did not necessarily agree with them on theology or law, and that's part of why these practices were so powerful. So praying in shoes is something that Salafis talk in Egypt talk a lot about in the early 50s. It's something that they would have found agreement with uh, in places like Saudi Arabia that had an inbuilt tradition of Hanbalism, specifically Wahhabi Hanbalism in the Saudi case, Um, but it's also very provocative in the Egyptian context. And then what happens is it essentially drops off for give or take four decades. That reading on Sarasunna's periodicals, and they run almost continuously from um, 1936 to through the 1970s and then beyond, one is struck by the fact that from basically the mid-1950s through 1989, there's almost no discussion of praying in shoes. Um, And that at the point that the discussion returns, there's an acknowledgement that this is a praiseworthy practice this is mustahab. There's an acknowledgement that authenticated hadiths make clear that the prophet Muhammad did this. And then there is something of a um, ambivalence as to whether one should do this, even though it's mustahab, which is really striking in two respects. One is that when we compare this to how vigorously folks in Ansar Sunnah were advocating for this 40 years before, it's really striking. the second is it's really striking because it's this case where there's the proof texts in question are not up for debate. And yet and yet Salafis are doing something that they almost never do, which is making an argument for why, even though the hadith reports in question are clearly authenticated, even though they previously made the argument that these hadith that this practice is praiseworthy, if not more, you maybe should avoid this whether because it could dirty the mosque's carpets or because it could cause fitna or because it would be considered sual adab or rude, um, all of these justifications for not following a what is clearly a prophetic practice. And there are folks who might look at Salafis in this story and say, oh, well, this just shows that they're being hypocritical. I don't look at it from that lens. I think that every movement has its tensions We should expect activist movements to have their tensions, to have this challenge of squaring between principles and practice. And it's precisely these tensions that give us this really valuable analytical lens for understanding how the movement works internally, how it is shaped by the world around it. Um, And to come back to this historical question, what happens in those 40 years? Well, Jamal Abdel Nasser comes to power. Right, and suddenly distinctiveness in mosques is a liability, not an asset, because at a time where thousands of Muslim brothers are getting thrown in prison, you don't want to stand out. And so, while that explains our first moment, and in some sense, right, gives us some sympathy for why it initially drops off, Um, but what's so striking is that it persists, it comes back, and then the question is how to make sense of it. And it's a reminder here that the reproduction of a prophetic paradigm, however simple it may seem, and this is in some sense a pretty straightforward case. The, the practice is really obvious. The practice is not visually complicated. Um, the question of performing these practices in social life is much more complicated. And so in, some, in that sense, the textual corpus is step one of understanding why Selefes perform a given practice but only step one. And we then have to explain what are the historical conditions in which they do so. And what are the drivers uh, of performance or non-performance in that context?
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: I'm I'm always fascinated by inconsistencies, uh, you know, patterns and when patterns uh, when there's a break in, in a pattern. Um, this was a part of my dissertation research. How do Muslims decide, you know, what to keep and what to how to negotiate how they negotiate with um, the Islamic tradition to maintain certain practices and beliefs and reject others one of the many things I've learned in my uh, from my PhD and all of these decades of, of learning is uh probably to not expect consistency from move not just movements but like religions, scriptures uh just humans who are not going to do that but what is fascinating is how they the, the kinds of arguments they use in many cases, it's a practical decision. Like, I, I mean, I can imagine not praying if I, I can imagine if I prayed with, with my shoes on at my, in my parents' home, they'd be, they'd be devastated. Like, what are you doing? This is absolutely unacceptable, but also dirty shoes. And what are you doing? Right. But then we don't apply that question of practicality probably to a whole bunch of other moments when it could really benefit us. Um. So yeah, it's a thoroughly fascinating chapter. And another fascinating chapter that I, uh, that I really enjoyed also, was uh, the segregation one, the the mixing of the genders. So you, you describe how you describe the, the the gradual shift towards segregation. It wasn't initially insisted upon. It wasn't promoted. Um, there were complaints about, oh my God, women, men are mixing. Women are dressing appropriately, um, and the different contexts in Saudi and Egypt, in particular, that shaped this debate in the Middle East. But what is, so what is that conversation like? What is happening in Egypt also, but not just in Egypt and Saudi, but in the Middle East broadly, um, that shapes this conversation? What are some of the conclusions? And I would love for you to continue talking about this shift, right? What is the, what is the beginning of the conversation like, and how do we get to make sure we're segregating?
2: So, so the big picture development that undergirds all of these debates first over gender mixing and then over the argument that gender segregation is the solution to gender mixing, rather than say individual conduct is mass urbanization um, migration from the countryside, the the necessity of public transportation and then of these mixed spaces in the context of expanded education and bureaucratic employment, uh, all of these infrastructural conditions that are leading young men and women to increasingly inhabit the same spaces, um, inhabit spaces where their family ties no longer identify them in any fundamental way, um, in which they meet a variety of people who they would not have otherwise have met. Um, And so that's a shift we see in Egypt, in particular in Saudi Arabia. It's a more rapid shift in the sense that oil money really drives a developmentalist model during the second half of the 20th century. Um, And so as these new institutions of education and bureaucratic um, offices develop, the question is, well, what are the norms going to be that define them? Um, what are the rules what are the uh, rules of the game going to be? Now, part of what makes this story interesting is that in Saudi Arabia, one already has gender segregated space workplaces and schools going back to the 50s. And that's because if we're looking at the Wahhabi Hanbali School, and you know, as I note in the book. I think the best way to understand Saudi Arabia is essentially as a Wahhabi Hanbali majority with a Salafi minority that is particularly well-placed, particularly prominent. Um, Part of what's striking about Saudi Arabia is there's not only already gender segregated institutions, but there's already a case for gender segregation. And that's something we find in the writings of really the doyen of the Saudi religious establishment, Mohammed bin Ibrahim, who dies in 1969. Now, if one reads Ibn Ibrahim's fatwas, one is struck not simply by the argument that gender segregation is necessary, but how he justifies it. Namely, he justifies it through the idea of damning the pretext of sin, of sad al uh, Now, this is a perfectly reasonable argument for a madhhab scholar to make. Namely, that an action may not be explicitly prohibited, but because we know that action leads to prohibited action, therefore, It should be prohibited. What's interesting in the Salafi case, though, is that you can't, that Salafis are very uncomfortable using these methodological tools because their whole argument is that everything that they are arguing for goes back to proof texts from the Quran and the Sunnah. And with the exception of prayer spaces, we really don't have models of. Men and women being separated more broadly um, within the hadith corpus. We don't have a discussion of the, we don't, for example, we have an we have these hadith about Muhammad praying in shoes, but we don't have hadith about Muhammad saying men and women may not mix, right? And so, as a result, Salafis are in this really challenging textual position, namely, how to justify a practice for which they don't have an explicit proof text. And to be clear, I don't think there's anything particularly um, notable about that find, uh, in the sense that I think that scholars in any religious tradition are constantly put in the position of having to tackle novel situations and to do so creatively. Uh, and techniques such as, Damning the pretext of sin or invocations of the common good of al maslah al amma are really useful ways to do that. The problem for Salafis, though, is they can't easily avail themselves of those textual tools as a matter of authenticity, because their whole claim to authenticity is, is premised on continuity with this 7th century model. And therefore... For Salafis, they have to find something within this 7th century model that will allow them to justify the prohibition against gender mixing, the necessity of gender segregation. And this brings us to one of our leading Saudi Salafis abilities, Ibn Baz. And Ibn Baz is concerned with questions of gender mixing going back to the early 1970s, but where this conversation really intensifies is first in an article a series of articles published in the journal of the Islamic University of Medina which is then also published in revised form in Ansar al-Sunnah's periodical al-Tawhid published in Egypt um, just a few months later and he fastens on to the Quranic prohibition against tabaruj which is um, historically understood as a question of female conduct that it's telling women not to flaunt themselves and there are a variety of bodily acts that one can do to draw attention to oneself, to one's sexuality. And what he does, though, is very striking and is very much at variance with a variety of other Salafi scholars, including Muhammad Nasruddin al beni He declares, a tabaraj which is to say, taba- taba- the prohibition against flaunting is actually a prohibition against mixing. I have never found anyone making this claim previously. And indeed, within a few years, He has dropped it. He repeats it twice, first in Saudi Arabia, then in Egypt, and then he essentially drops it and comes to some version of ichtilat is forbidden, mixing is forbidden because it leads to all sorts of of illicit actions. But he doesn't come back to this particular claim um, after about 1980. And again, this is a really interesting inconsistency. What does it tell us? Well, one might say it tells us that Abdulaziz ibn Bez was between a rock and a hard place because both because of the broader efforts of Salafis to stake out a claim to public morality, whether in Egypt or Saudi Arabia during the 1970s, they needed to have a gender project. But in Saudi Arabia, for example, we have the challenge that There's already gender segregation, so it's a question of how does one go along with that? How does one fit oneself within the already dominant interpretation of Muhammad bin Ibrahim? In the Egyptian case, it's actually even more challenging because a variety of Islamic movements, namely the Muslim Brotherhood and the Jama'a Islamiyah, the Islamic student movement, are already seeking to offer gender segregated busing and even school seating pretty inconsistently, mind you, but they're still seeking to offer it on Egyptian university campuses. And so the question is, well, how can Salafis lay claim to the mantle of public piety in the face of this competition? They need to have an answer here too. But this is where Ibn Ibn Baz, excuse me, is between a rock and a hard place because he doesn't have the proof texts he needs to make this case easily. He doesn't have anything approaching the kind of textual resources that he had, that he would have had, for example, on a question such as praying in shoes. And therefore he needs to make a move that provides a proof text from either the Quran or the Sunnah for gender mixing being prohibited. And thus he claims Tabaraj means ichtilah. And what's as interesting, right, is that he then drops it within a few years. So what does this tell us? Well. It tells us that the Salafi commitment to gender segregation as a non-negotiable principle is one that doesn't emerge, obviously, out of the textual model, the textual resources of early Islam. But more than that, it tells us that Salafis are engaged in a project of seeking to regulate social space that is not only shaped by they're secular nationalists or Islamist competitors, but it's actually shaped by a broader debate over women's role in public space. And this is a, role, a debate over the role of women in public space that they actually inherit from Abdel Nasser's project of state feminism, which is, really coming out, which is coming out of secular nationalism. Namely, this idea, and here I'll note Laura Beer's wonderful work on state feminism in Egypt. It's this idea that women are not simply objects of reform, but also agents of reform, that one needs women in public in the secular nationalist model as evidence of a secular nationalist public sphere. Therefore, Salafis need women in public too as a model of an Islamic, a specifically Salafi Islamic public sphere. And therefore, as much as folks like Ibn Baz or their Egyptian counterparts might valorize a domestically rooted Muslim woman, they also are in some sense very much attracted, if not in need of women to be in public to signal the commitment of these women to their model of uh, not merely Islamic theology, but also this broader social order.
1: Oh, that is just so powerful. And, you know. Is it for? Is it for when he's talking about beard, the length of the beard that Ibn Baz finally he says, yeah, we should just rely on the tradition for this. it's not in the Hadith and it's not in the Quran. Let's, it's okay to go to the uh, the madhabs and um, you know uh, understand this uh, how how long the beard should be and all of that. But so speaking of the beard then. Um, which you you mention it throughout uh, throughout the book, and then there's a whole chapter dedicated to it alone, also where you trace this conversation on the beard and its length and the fact that many Salafi thinkers uh, end up re- or movements rely and end up relying on the tradition, um, the same ones that they in theory don't need um, to make their case for it. What is what is going on with the beard and you bring up in the conclusion of the book that it takes um it takes until the 1970s for the conversation of 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 this beard to become so important yeah what is what is going on what are the different um, approaches to the beard what are the different sources what textual traditions are they going to have to need now so how are they dealing with this uh, another problem really to have to justify
2: yeah so Okay, so the beard was also one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, I'm not sure there was a not favorite chapter, but there were in this book. But there were just this was one where I really was I, I was digging down and trying to figure out what exactly was going on here. Right. So the basic Hellenistic beard, as it is now defined, is a trimmed mustache and a, a beard that is a minimum of a kamda or fist in length. Now, there's a few textual interpretive issues that arise immediately here. One is that we have a variety of hadith reports of Muhammad commanding people to, commanding Muslims to grow a beard, but that the actual measurement of the fist comes from Ibn Omar, one of the companions, and specifically in the context of doing the pilgrimage. Um, That this is a a question specifically of Ibn Omar trimming his beard to a fist in the context of doing the Hajar. Um, And the second interpretive issue that comes up is that The Qabda, as a minimum, is very much a standard measurement within the fiqh literature. This is a a measurement that madhab scholars use all the time. Um, And so here we're reminded of the fact that as much as Salafis might contrast themselves with the madhabs, they are also very much influenced by them, and understandably so. It makes sense that Muslim scholars in the 20th century should be influenced by their predecessors even if they really disagree with not merely the interpretive approach but also the institutional weight of those predecessors. Um, so the question then is we have the, the proof texts of the obligation to grow a beard, we have the proof texts of Ibn Omar, um, and the Qabda as a minimum, we have the Qabda as a standard measurement in the thick tradition. Okay, so this brings us to when Salafis adopted. A, beard, a distinct beard as something that's central to their movement. And part of what's so striking about the 30s and 40s is that key Salafis such as Muhammad Hamid al-Sikki, founder of Ansar Sunnah, argue that growing a beard is really important, but say nothing specific about said beard. Um, there's nothing distinguishing about it. There's not um, anything that will differentiate Salafis from other, from other pious Muslims. Or for that matter, from pre-modern Islamic models, which are still, which still exist of the beard is simply a marker of an Islamic masculinity. Uh, and indeed, this, as you know, this debate really doesn't come to fore until the 1970s. But here's what's so interesting about the debate in the 30s and early 40s. Other groups have very strong views of facial hair. Secular nationalists argue for the mustache and the shaved face. But more interestingly, the Muslim Brotherhood is modeling a particular understanding of facial hair. And Gudrun Kramer has referred to Hassan al-Banna's model as an Islamic modern, um, Islamic modern appearance. Um, um, But what's really interesting in that appearance is not just that he has this closely trimmed beard, but the textual proofs for this beard. And here I come to an article that I found in the Brotherhood's journal by a le- that who, someone who was then a leading member of the organization, a scholar named Asayid Sebek. Uh, and Asaid Sebek argued that a moderate beard was something, was precisely what the Islamic tradition demanded, and that this was really exemplified by Hassan al-Banna's facial hair. But here's where it gets really interesting a Sayyid Sebek cites the Ibn Umar hadith on trimming one's beard to a minimum of a fist to justify a closely trimmed beard that is nowhere close to a minimum of a fist. Um, so here we have later Salafis are going to draw on this hadith. A Muslim brother was drawing on it already in the early 40s to argue for two radically different understandings of facial hair. And then we have Again, this historical silence on the beard, which is understandable in the context of 1950s and 1960s Egypt, where Abdel Nasser is really cracking down on anyone who looks religious. And we also have these memoirs of Muslim brothers in Abdel Nasser's prisons, um, who experienced these prison guards shaving either half their beard or half their hair. um, That we see here that even questions of physical punishment and torture are targeting hair because this is such a potent ideological site um, and such a way to humiliate someone, obviously. Uh, And so this brings us to the 70s uh, and early 80s. And to particularly this concern with how Salafis can distinguish themselves from these other Islamic movements that are emerging during this period. Um, And particularly, we're thinking in Egypt about the Jama'a Islamiyah, the Islamic student movement, who have these bushy beards. We're also thinking in Saudi Arabia about the Jamaa Salafiyah Muhtasibah, who attacked the Grand Mosque of Mecca in 1979, who all themselves have these really big and bushy beards. And in this context, Salafis are really concerned, really going up through the 1980s, because they keep getting swept up in these security sweeps for jihadists. So they're really concerned that they keep getting swept up with jihadis and most of jihadi, the jihadi movement at this point is not at Salafi. Um, and so they keep getting confused with folks who they really have relatively little in common with. The jihadis are revolutionaries and the, and the vast majority of Salafis are political quietists. Um, and so it's in this context that we have this conversation about the beard and how the beard is central to what it means to emulate the Prophet Muhammad. And there's two things that really stick out about this conversation. One is the question which comes up in the context of um, gender mixing as well, which is what took so long? Uh, why why is this taking nearly half a century? And the second is, well, wh- why do beards matter? What Why does this specific beard matter? It doesn't simply matter because it's about emulating the Prophet Muhammad, though that's obviously part of the motivation. It matters in a very specific way because it's a visual way of modeling a Salafi understanding of that of that emulation. It's a visual way of identifying the commitment to of linking the commitment to emulating Muhammad with a visible practice. And in doing so, making clear, who the Salafis are. Now, none of these practices are necessarily sufficient on their own, though praying in shoes comes pretty close. Uh, But if you perform these practices in conjunction with one another, then suddenly it becomes reasonably easy to visually identify a Salafi. Um, And so we get to this point where by the early 90s, the Qabda is the undeniable minimum of the Salafi beard, which Salafis, of course, understand as the Sunni beard. They don't refer to it as a lahya salafiya, they refer to it as a lahya Sunniya. Um, and this is, this is something that wasn't even present 15 years prior, let alone 50 years prior.
1: That's just what is, I mean, again, that was like one of the theme of surprise for me throughout. And Speaking of uh, or continuing this conversation of the uh, visibility, the last content chapter is specifically addressing sartorial piety as gleaned from um, one's dress style. Right, so the length of one's pants and the robe to the point that wearing a long uh, long pants or long robes that reach below the ankle is prohibited. Um, or mm-hmm. it, and what is interesting was the association with arrogance. I was like, oh, so it's the the you know that this is it's prohibited because it's it's arrogant. But but it's not like there's you know an agreement on the on the length and um, and I think this was especially in Ibn Baz's uh, ruling about how long uh, you know what is an acceptable length and, uh, for the for the robe and all of that. What is motivating motivating this conversation? What is what what is up with this? Uh, I don't. I, I'm. I don't want to say obsession, but <laughs> because it was. I, I, there's this this thing of you know looking a certain way and um, being showing your piety through how you dress and all of that. But yeah, what is talk to us about uh, the robe and how long it should be and how the, the pants and the conversation with the nationalists and the secularists and yeah.
2: yeah. So 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 there's this prohibition against in, in the hadith corpus against Isabel, of letting one's robes hang down, and this is specifically associated with arrogance. Um, Now, there are a variety of other sartorial practices, um, such as wearing flashy clothing, that are also associated with arrogance, Um, and no one observes this in the early 20th century Egypt. I mean, this is just not, this is something, this is one of these practices that one can argue for on the hadith corp, on the basis of the hadith corpus. One can argue for it from the madhabs, but no one does it, or very few people do it. That um, I spent a lot of time looking for pictures of leading Islamic reformists of the early 20th century solely to look at their legs, solely to try to figure out what are they wearing. Um, it, you know, because usually the problem is what you discover is actually usually the pictures cut off before the ankles, and so you're left with this question of. Oh, what were their shoes and what, you know, how much of their leg can I see? Um, and so, but I, I still managed to come up with a fair number of pictures where you look at people like Rashid Rida. And there's no question that Rashid Rida did not observe this prohibition. There's simply no question at all. Uh, that there's no, that Muhammad Abdu does not appear to have observed this prohibition. Uh, and how can grow it going up through the 1970s when one looks at activists of the Islamic student movement who, are very outwardly, outwardly pious, are very concerned with projecting their piety outward, that few of them are observing this prohibition. Uh, and so the question is, well, so what's going on here? And the adoption of the prohibition against Ismail is really the, the last one to develop within this complex of Salafi practices. And the first reference to it that I could find was actually from Ibn al uthaymeen a fatwa he gave in 1979. And there's two things, again, there's two things that are notable about Isbel suddenly becoming this non-negotiable practice. The first is timing. And here we might understand that within this challenge of visually distinguishing Salafis from other Islamic activists, um, of finding yet another way to link between an ethical commitment to emulating the prophet and visible behavior, um, of allowing someone to look at someone and say, okay, they've got the trimmed mustache, the fist-length beard, and they're observing a spell. I know this person is a Salafi. Um, But there's more than that there. Um, There's this question of how the Islamic tradition and its internal interpretive debates are being narrowed. In this particular, what might would call a reactivation of a long standing prohibition. Because within the Madhav scholarship, and this is something I talk about in the book, there is an effort to distinguish between intentions and practices, that one could, in theory, let one's robes hang down, but not be doing so out of arrogance. And this is a, a broader point here that one doesn't necessarily assume a given ideological position from just how one looks. Uh, and, you know, Thomas Bauer has written really interestingly about this um, in his book, the Culture of Ambiguity, um, and thinking about the ways in which the interpretive possibilities of the Islamic tradition and also uh, the tolerance of, or not, not simply the tolerance, but the acceptance of ambiguity and disagreement as part of this uh, has really been narrowed uh, in the context of modernity. So the Salafi position, though, is that essentially there is no situation where if your robes are hanging down, this is not considered an act of defiance towards God. That, and that has two really powerful uh, functions. One is to convince Salafis that they really, really need to do it. The second is to really separate Salafis from the society in which they live and to make them question the very religious commitment of their fellow Muslims, Uh, not merely the secular nationalists, but also, say, Muslim brothers. Um, And so this creates something of a litmus test of, well, either you're going to bring your pants up or else. And it's, a kind, it's the kind of litmus test that has a social sorting effect, because there are all sorts of spaces, such as, say, the army, um, where, you know, in conscription in Egypt is mandatory, where you don't have this option, just as you don't, you don't have the option to maintain a beard. And so essentially what the Salafi movement is doing is giving its followers a basic choice. Either you follow the sunnah of the prophet, as we understand it, or you live in these spaces, but we're not going to make it very easy to accommodate living in, essentially living in multiple kinds of spaces. Uh, and on the one hand, it's a really powerful model. It's it's really setting down um, a particular understanding of the world as an attempt to be a standard bearer for the prophetic model, but it's also really difficult one for people to follow and it makes therefore a lot of sense um it makes a lot of sense in terms of the scholarship we have the ethnographic scholarship we have on salafism uh particularly works by folks such as samuli shilka on essentially burnout within the salafi movement and, you know i always come back to something that uh shilka wrote in um, his article ambivalent commitments which is that both the pattern here i'm paraphrasing that the both the power and the The challenge of Salafism is that you never know when you succeed, but you always know when you fail. Um, And that this is, on the one hand, an incredibly powerful driver of Salafi piety, because you're never enough. You're always trying. You're never enough. You never reach there. Salafi piety is always aspirational. But on the other hand, it's also, for many people, utterly exhausting. It gives you no break. It gives you no room to fail. It, in some sense, notwithstanding the intellectual inconsistencies of or intellectual tensions within the emergence, in the context of the emergence of Salafi practice, Salafi rank and file men and women aren't given the space for that kind of tension. Rather, they, they're simply a black and white um, view of the world. And No, look, that that black and white view of the world is really powerful. You feel like you are a member of the Thirka the saved sect, but it's you feel like you have a truth that other Muslims do not have. But it's also exhausting. It's really challenging. If we're just looking at these folks as you know people that we could share social space with, who are looking to live a righteous life, you just imagine how hard that is. um, That it is at equal times, exhilarating and challenging, and there isn't much in between.
1: Meanwhile, how are women supposed to dress?
2: And sort of Salafism is this really challenging topic, because on the one hand, I think it's incredibly important to take this movement seriously, intellectually, socially, um, and to take Salafism seriously as people. On the other hand, we also really need to reckon with the social and religious implications of a lot of these practices um, that this is a movement that is profoundly patriarchal, um, that is in many respects um, not, it's not simply a movement that disagrees with non-Muslims. It's a movement that that is profoundly intolerant of difference of opinion among Muslims. Um, and so the question is sort of in some sense what to make of that, um, how, how to, make sense of this view of the world and how to engage with it um, intellectually um, without losing sight of the fact that it is very much a world-making project that has real implications. Um, Now, part of what I find so striking about the Salafi project of gender segregation is, well, I'd say there's two things. One is that initially, there's not any real consensus on what proper modesty is, and here we have someone like Muhammad Nasraddin al Beni, for whom this becomes a real problem with other Salafis, because al Beni takes the view. And look, there's no more, there's no person more archly socially conservative than al Um This man would not, this man doesn't have a, um, didn't have a liberal instinct in his body, and that's fine. Right, That's where he stands. But that's part of what makes it so interesting that al beni to the end of his life, takes the position that the obligation of women to cover themselves, except mina, um, here we have the Quranic reference, does not refer to the face. It refers to the hair, that women are not obligated to wear the niqab. Um, now, He nonetheless, he is in some sense a loud voice in the 50s and 60s on this, um, which clashes with his counter, his Wahhabi Hanbali counterpart in Saudi Arabia. There's speculation that this is one of the reasons why he doesn't, reasons he doesn't last very long in the early 60s at the Islamic University of Medina. Um, But essentially in the course of the 70s, Salafis come to the view that the niqab is required. But they can't quite then figure out how to regulate this as a matter of public practice. And there's two regulatory issues. One is a structural problem, namely that if you can't provide gender segregation and you evidently can't – and you evidently are not offering a model um, of – in which men need to discipline themselves in the same way women do – then this project essentially is prone to ambiguity, if not chaos. Um, that if you can't provide gender segregated spaces, then what are Salafis supposed to do? But I actually think, and here I'm more speaking in terms of scholarship on gender segregation in Saudi Arabia, and particularly what I read, particularly Amalia Le Renard's wonderful book, is that you then have a problem how to regulate these gender segregated spaces internally, that if men are limited to the male section and are simp- are basically mining the gap between male and female sections so to j- make sure no men go into the women's section and no women into the men's section, then they have a limited ability without female allies to regulate what goes on in the women's section. Um, it's also the case that insofar as the niqab not only hides... Women's faces, but just more broadly hides their identities. Um, there's a more there's more of a challenge of visually identifying women in a way that you wouldn't have the same problem with a man. Um, and so this is, in some sense, a dynamic that underscores the limits, the regulatory limits to this scheme. That it can separate men and women, but it can't. It actually, as a matter of practice, ultimately regulates what goes on in men's space more so than it regulates what goes on in women's space um, in ways that are a little bit counterintuitive. Um, And this is, is in some sense, was for me a counterintuitive finding of the book more broadly that we often talk about Salafism as a project that seeks to regulate women's bodies, as a patriarchal project that seeks to regulate women's bodies. And it's absolutely that, 100%. But insofar as it's a project concerned with the linkage between ethics and visibility. And insofar as men are visible far more than women, then we actually have a great deal of regulation of men's bodies, too. Um, and that really, in some sense, allows us to take a step back and say, this project of bodily regulation, both self-regulation and regulation by the state, where is it coming from? And it's not, it's not coming from the Islamic legal tradition. Um, it's not coming from, from the Islamic ethical tradition. It, it's this distinctly modern project of regulation that, in some sense, we've all imbibed as, in the context of growing up in modern states um, and of thinking of our own bodily practice as reflecting some value or another. Um, and so, that's in some sense what's so one of the tensions or contradictions that lies at the heart. Of Salafi understandings of gender, that it's on the one hand highly patriarchal and very restrictive, but also the regulatory reach has very real limits.
1: That's a that's a really good point, um, especially about the, the the that it's a project um, that is rooted in sort of an, in, not so much in Islamic legal ethical. It's not a it's not rooted in Islamic legal or ethical traditions, but it's a distinctly distinctly modern project of regula- regulation and that it regulates both men and women's bodies. And of course, just men still end up, you know, faring much better. Much better. Um, well, I mean, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, what, what I would also say, right, is that this is sort of in some sense, what is mm-hmm. most, what was to me most surprising about Salafism. And also is a space where I think that this project, even though the goals were historical and, um, Now, this isn't the the normative debate. is not simply not one for me to intervene in because it's not my normative debate. Um, In some sense, part of what's interesting to me is one reads scholarship on um, one listens to internal Muslim discourses about Salafism and about authenticity, and often these internal discourses accept this idea of continuity. They accept of that Salafi that in some sense. For the internal discourses, the problem with Celethes is their continuity, is them going back to the 7th century. But this book essentially turns that claim to authenticity on its head, and then you can have a conversation of, if we are all equally modern, and we are all equally modern, what does authenticity mean? What is this kind of textual authenticity? Um, To what extent should, should any religious tradition subscribe to the idea? that authenticity is what we have in text, given what we know about the limits of texts in terms of illustrating the full breadth of religious history. Um, And I think this is the kind of theoretical and methodological conversation that folks in many religious traditions have. Um, And one of the things that is really interesting for me, therefore, is to think, okay, so if the claim to historical continuity with the seventh century, is not a plausible one empirically, then what are the implications of that beyond the academic world? And that's, you know, I didn't go into the book looking to have any normative implications for my book, but I'm also very conscious of the fact and that there's a responsibility in what one writes to think about what those implications might be, Um, even if one can't control those implications, to think about them. Um, And I think this, is a, and I don't, I, I don't think that's a conversation that's limited um, to members of any one tradition, because every religious tradition has a faction that lays claim to this kind of continuity, whether it's to the seventh century to, or to another century. Uh, and it's part of what I think is so valuable about religious studies um, and history in terms of the study of piety that one is able to tackle some some of these questions that have real normative implications, too, even if that's not the main conversation.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, it's very helpful. Um, that's all the questions that I have content wise. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this discussion?
2: No, I, I feel like I have talked a lot about this book. <laughs> um, I, I hope that uh, I, I haven't talked about everything in the book. Um, there's two hundred. Plus pages that uh, I think if folks are interested in reading it, they will discover, you know, further submerged depths of uh, the hole I dug. You know, the sort of hole I dug into the ground, um, digging to understand the roots of Salafism. Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think I've probably said about it enough about it for now.
1: No thank you um yes highly recommended to readers i as i read i take notes um about page numbers like oh here's a fun anecdote or here's an interesting thing on this uh, page and this is just one sample of what that looks like <laughs> so just to give you, wow. so really highly recommended because it's there's such fascinating things and i have exclamation marks all over and i uh, lately i've been writing w WTFs in a lot of my the margins of my book so <laughs> so, so yeah thank you it was a very fascinating book and uh, with a lot of implications and uh, relevance, and I, um, I think done very um, in, in a way that recognizes the significance of the Salafi movement as a movement, and also noting sort of these inconsistencies and contradictions in ways that we need to be able to contend with in in any movement. So, um, thank you for the book. As we close, we would like to ask our author if there's anything that they're currently working on that they'd like to share with us. Uh, any current projects, research?
2: Yes, so there are a few things going on right- Right now, um, one is a monograph length project on Islam and politics and Mandate Palestine, thinking about Islam and politics in this context, not merely in the context of the Israeli, well, the, the pre state um, Yeshua Palestinian conflict, and then later the Israeli Palestinian conflict, but also in terms of a broader set of Islamic reformist networks, thinking about the Palestinians as engaging in this broad, and contributing to these broader debates, not merely in the Middle East, but, um, but also in South Asia, that we have this evidence of real engagement with what it means to live under British colonial occupation. Um, and so that's a project I'm working on. In the short term, I'm also working on another piece on Salafi legal theory uh, that I'm going essentially thinking about what practice can teach us about Salafi legal theory um, and how, it, how the Salafi commitment to the Quran and the Sunnah relates to actual legal practice. To what extent can understanding Salafis in these terms um, and really probing into the Salafi interpretive approach help us understand what Salafis actually do in practice as an interpretive matter. Um, And if not, well, then can we offer a better model for understanding Salafism? Um, And just in the long term, there's this, and you made a reference to uh, how this story might play in South Asia. There's, a longer term project I'm working on with an old friend and colleague from grad school, Simon Fuchs, on a trans history of Islamic movements between the Middle East and South Asia in the 20th century, uh, which will include Salafis, but will also include many other movements and thinkers.
1: Oh, they all sound very, very fascinating. Thank you, I am I look forward to them.
2: Um, uh, I I look forward to them being done too. It'll take a little while.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have a book to be writing and I'm looking at that book somehow magically being done. Um, Okay, well, I really enjoyed this, Aaron. Thank you for talking with me.
2: Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: Alrighty, so that was my conversation with Aaron Roxinger about his incredibly fascinating and highly recommended book, *Shade: In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East, published in 2022 with the University of California Press. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back with another exciting episode soon. Salam. And Ramadan Mubarak if you are listening to this during Ramadan.